welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello, hello, hello everyone and welcome to episode 42 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'm your host today. If this is the first episode you are listening to, welcome. I would suggest maybe going back and listening to some of the episodes that came before. But since you're here, wanting to know more about Carnival, then please feel free to stay and I do hope you enjoy yourself. So today's episode, definitely following on from last episode which was about the origins of Notting Hill Carnival, mainly focused on the racial tensions in West London at the time. And to be honest, I think it makes the most sense for us to go back, all the way back to the 1800s, where else would we go, and leave West London and head to Trinidad, if we really want to think about the roots of carnival. Now, in England we call it carnival, in Jamaica they call it bacchanal, they call it cropover in some parts of the world, fete, John Connor, whatever you call it from wherever you are in the world, we're talking about partying to be honest, at its core, at its root, we're talking about having a good time. And I wanted to bring some joy this episode. I don't want to think too much about the racial tensions and the Teddy Boys and the Notting Hill riots and the death of Kelso Cochrane. That was last week's episode. And if you do want to listen to that, please feel free because it will give you a good context base for why Carnival is so important in the sense of Notting Hill. Um, and what it kind of means, I think. For black people that know that history and understand the racial tensions, especially in West London in the 1950s and early 60s, when Carnival had its roots. So, the roots of Carnival. I won't say this is a clean history, and by clean I mean there's not one story that everybody believes to be true and is completely factual, Um, There are many versions of events in regards to Notting Hill and its origins and also in Trinidad um, and the Caribbean Um, because these histories, I don't think they're as clean as saying, well, these people were doing this exact thing and this exact day at this exact time and it meant this exact thing to them. It meant different things to different people and Carnival, as we know it, happened in different ways. So I'm just going to talk you through really. My notes are bullet points this week. Sometimes they're sentences, sometimes I don't have notes, but today they're bullet points because I think that just highlights the way my thoughts are. Just a series of bullet points at the moment. So, carnivals take place every year, often before Lent. Thinking about Mardi Gras in New Orleans um, and in some parts of Europe, that kind of vibe. So, the Latin carne, meaning meat or flesh and veil, meaning farewell, so carnival, um, carne meaning meat or flesh, veil meaning farewell, kind of suggests that it links to the last days before fasting and like self-denial that Christians do during Lent. So um, the tradition of Lent is that you are sacrificing something. It's kind of turned into this idea of just giving up one thing for Lent, but previously and historically it would have been a full fast. And so you were kind of giving something up. You were giving up part of your flesh to God. Um, And so carnival comes before that as this big celebration um, and this kind of farewell, carnival. Um, It also links to the end of slavery, um, 1824, precisely. Um, Remember now, Caribbean countries have been colonised by European powers that might have been Catholic in the sense of this kind of Latin tradition um, of saying farewell to your flesh. Um, And so that's where that would have come in. Some countries were obviously colonised by the Spanish, um, who had roots in Catholicism, the French, the British, or whoever. Um, And so... 
in yeah 1824 around that time um people that were formerly enslaved who were descendants of Africa West Africa probably most likely um and were forcibly brought to Trinidad in this case acted out something called cambule now please excuse my french <laughs> um which actually stands for burning cane cans brules um and it was a night procession with call and response singing drumming dancing stick fighting and carrying of light, lit torches um and this drew on african ritual cultures and masquerade traditions um that the enslaved people were kind of holding on to coming to these new lands that they didn't know um they were holding on to a lot of their traditions and languages and foods um which we've we've talked about in the past and so the ex-enslaved people they brought in cambule um into the kind of white planter class, these Mardi Gras celebrations before um, Lent. So it was kind of a culmination in some ways and in some aspects. Now, not every single part of Carnival has roots in this. And this is why I say this history is not very clean. It's a little bit messy in the sense of I'm kind of pulling threads from everywhere. Now, I will say white planters abandoned Mardi Gras Carnival after emancipation which would have been around 1833 in the kind of British Caribbean. Um, and so the ex-enslaved people actually claimed that as their new creative space um, and transformed the European Mardi Gras carnival into a Caribbean carnival, which draws more on its African artistic and cultural roots. Now, Notting Hill Carnival, you're thinking, is nowhere near Lent, although Trinidad Carnival um, and some of the other global carnivals are. But Notting Hill Carnival, I think, shook off the christian calendar a bit um and it takes place in august and i don't know the exact reason for this but i'm not gonna lie wouldn't be surprised if it was just because of the weather because really and truly the weather around lent time which is like march february even is atrocious we could never have a carnival in february we would be slipping and sliding dancing in the rain although we do that anyway in august so yeah i don't know if it was the weather or the fact that the conversations around the initial carnival that Claudia Jones was thinking about organising, although it was indoors, kind of happened around August because of the bank holiday and it being a somewhat free day and a free weekend and potentially, and you know, realistically should be one of the hottest weekends of the year, although it never is. I'm recording on this weekend, looking outside my window and the clouds are grey. I think it's important to also understand motivations for Trinidad Carnival um, and I wrote an essay about this quite a while ago, actually. So I'm using some of the information I had from there. And unfortunately, my referencing, it's gotten a lot better over time. But back then, it wasn't fantastic. So this is a quote. It's not my quote. Um, my footnotes are telling me that it's Geraldine Cooper and Max Farrar. And I'm not sure what text that's in, but I will put it in the footnotes, um, or the show notes, sorry, um, for this episode or on Instagram or Twitter. Um, but this idea that Trinidad Carnival was used as a, and I quote, vehicle for protest against injustices of colonial subjugation. So it was a pushback. And I think in the same way, um, the colonial forces of in Trinidad at that time, uh, when we think about Notting Hill, it is a pushback against not necessarily what we would call the colonial forces, but the British state, British racism, uh, the fascists, the racists, the teddy boys, and all those people and groups and systems that were causing the experience of Caribbean people in London and in the wider country to be negative. Now, whilst Notting Hill Carnival 
obviously is one of the biggest um it is the biggest in the uk there's also leeds carnival there's a carnival in handsworth or there used to be anyway in birmingham um that hasn't happened for a long time if anybody knows anything about that please can somebody message me because i would really 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 love for that to come back one day um i don't know if it's a council thing if it was a financial thing if it was whatever the thing was but i think also the fact that Hansworth Carnival is a thing of my childhood that I would go to that no longer exists just shows how these things can be taken away. And Nothing Hill Carnival gets the same critique that Hansworth Carnival once had. And I would hate to see that gone one day. And I know right now we don't have it and a lot of people are like, oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm set up with Carnival anyway. It just causes rubbish on the streets and loads of crime. Well, you know... Um, the roots of it are so important that it has to be honoured and celebrated. Um, and yeah, I think it's important to note that there were other carnivals around the country which showed the situation in regards to race, racism and anti-racist struggles. But also the fact that these things, we might see them as a permanent part of our history and our, our culture, but they actually might not be here forever. Um, and what are we going to do? as quote-unquote the next generation in preserving these cultures and making sure that things like carnival stick around. Anyway, that was enough of a tangent. Back to Trinidad. So, the end of slavery. Um, a lot of the customs that I mentioned um, with cambule, which was the French for burning cane, became an act of defiance and it signified a celebration of freedom. So instead of saying farewell to the flesh for a period of fasting, it was farewell to the shackles of slavery, farewell to that life that we once led. Um, and white planters abandoned their Lent celebrations, as we said, and then the formerly enslaved people claimed it as their own. They used their creative space and transformed it into Caribbean carnival um, to challenge those colonial forces. And British authorities in Trinidad tried to suppress the gatherings in the post-emancipation period. This is after slavery. They were still trying to kind of say, well, no, you can't do this. Um, And it led to repeated clashes. And it's so funny because I feel like there are clashes now with the authorities um, and carnival goers, even to this day, um, and especially in the 1970s, actually. That's um, a whole episode for a whole other day. Um, but there were, you know, big riots at carnival in the 70s because of the way that the police just went so heavy handed with their policing and their harassment and their brutality. As they do, they can't help it. It's just within them, I think. Um, but it's very funny to me that this kind of history repeats from Trinidad in, you know, the post-emancipation era to 1970s Britain. So, class divides in the Caribbean, which were basically a cause of slavery um, and links to colorism because it kind of starts this pigmentocracy in the Caribbean, which are pigmentocracies where, you know, you're kind of judged by the, the shade of your skin, not necessarily... Uh, if you're black or white, but those kind of shades in between. You'd have mixed race people who were kind of seen as more upper class because of the proximity to whiteness. Um, And then you have the kind of darker skinned people who would be seen um, as kind of a lower class because of their lack of proximity to whiteness. And so the upper classes considered this new African artistry of carnival as quite undignified and lowly. Um, And there was a, a great lack of understanding, I think, around the cultural practices um, because of, I think, maybe their proximity to whiteness and the planter classes as opposed to their own African roots. And I think that is still the case today when we think about Notting Hill. People do not understand truly the roots and cultural practices of carnival. A lot of people say, you know, it's a Jamaican carnival. It's not. It's nothing to do with Jamaica. Jamaica comes in in the 70s 
um, with the creation of sound systems and things like that. This started very much um, Trinidadian in its roots with steel pans and playing mass with all these things that we'll get into shortly. Um, and I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that. Now, obviously, Jamaican people were the black majority in Britain. Um, and oftentimes, people, if they saw a black person, would just assume they were Jamaican, whether they were from Trinidad, Grenada, Guyana, Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa. They'd just see black and say, oh, they're Jamaicans. Um, and so this carnival gets very much, you know, rooted in this false narrative of being Jamaican. Um, and that's one of the misconceptions, I would say, around carnival. Um, especially now, where you go to carnival and you hear a lot of dancehall, reggae... Bashman, if you call it that, um, yeah, and, and Jamaican influence music, um, which was kind of inserted into Carnival at later stages. It, it's not how it started at all. An absolutely huge part of Carnival is costume. And I don't think we could do an episode on Carnival without thinking about it. I always think of Carnival as like what you can see, costumes, floats, what you can hear, the music, and what you can eat, the food. That's all that is important to me. And then what you do, which is the dancing, the walking, um, you know, around West London. And so costume is an important addition to Carnival, but it is an addition. It comes in the UK anyway, Notting Hill in 1973. Um, and it means that Carnival is essentially a performative art form um, and it embodies this kind of performance element. So you might have heard or not heard people saying they're playing mass when they dress up for carnival, mass, M-A-S. And it's taking the opportunity to transform, to kind of transcend your condition and your daily existence. And I think it's important because carnival then functions not only in a physical space, but spiritually as well. Um, because there are roots in, you know, spiritual ritual and tradition that came from Africa and so in its simplest form plain mass is dressing up in a costume but that's not all it is it's taking part in a street parade as part of this collective band or group but you're not only just dressing up in the physical you are kind of taking on part of something larger than yourself in a spiritual term and realm so you inhabit in some ways a new body plain mass whether that be traditional mass, African mass, historical mass, fun mass, there's lots of different types of mass. Um, but you're kind of going against what's perceived as normal. You wouldn't see someone walking around, you know, on a normal day outside of carnival, wherever, in a big costume, in feathers, or, you know, a different type of mass, um, which was being played. Costumes are meant to be extravagant. They are meant to be out of this world. They are not meant to be you know, in with the normal. So it's kind of funny, obviously, as carnival goers, we go in maybe normal clothes, summer clothes, maybe we'll rep a flag. Um, but the people that are actually playing mass on the floats, um, you know, they are not adhering to the aesthetic standards of beauty. It's all about the artistry. It's all about the performance of the wearer. It's all about what they're doing, how they're dancing, how they're moving um, and what they are portraying in their costume. They're big, they're bright, they're colourful. Men and women alike are decked out in beads, feathers, gems, glitter, vibrant colours. It's not a thing of like, oh, you know, pink feathers, we're not going to put that on a man. Gender roles are, I think, smashed. And I think that's beautiful in a way. And I think 
what makes it so beautiful for me in the context of Notting Hill. And this is actually what I wrote my essay about. It didn't go down very well, but, you know, hopefully it goes down well on the podcast. Um, is this idea that if you think about a police uniform, it's so black and white and dull. And you think about the landscape of Britain being grey, in my opinion. And then you just think about this injection of, of costume, of colour, of passion, of joy from the Caribbean that is just coming in in the form of carnival. It just completely juxtaposes what I think is synonymously British. You know, the teddy boys in their plain Edwardian suits getting excited about their duck ass hairstyles and the jelly roll that they do when in theory they're still in you know dark greys blacks dark blue colors the police again in black and white in plain colors very um strict in terms of being a uniform a very racist and oppressive uniform if you ask me and carnival just opposes everything it completely runs in parallel to the police presence in carnival um, and to the police generally you know it's only more recently that the police started wearing high vis which i guess is a little injection of color into their uniforms but for me what carnival stands for and then what kind of british institutions like the police stand for are just running in complete opposite and to kind of wrap up that like section on trinidad and costume and everything wanted to give um a quote from Earl lovelace from a text called the dragon can't dance 1979 he says no matter what they say all are one Carnival is a celebration of life, of melded identity. Carnival has spiritual and sacred and secular roots. Carnival is a time to throw off shackles, cast inhibitions to the wind, to reclaim freedom, to be whoever one chooses to become, to feel what it is to become another personality, to lose oneself through playing mass. Carnival is different things to different people. Above all, carnival subverts everyday social hierarchies. And I want to share that because I think that really epitomises what I see Carnival as and I think what it's supposed to be um, in its kind of most purest form, you know. And at this point, I also wanted to share an Instagram page, Know Your Caribbean. That's at Know Your Caribbean, spelled in the normal way. Um, and it's a woman that runs it um, and she's on her bio classes, a cultural ambassador with snapshots into Caribbean history. And she also does cultural and historical consultancy. And I love her page mostly because she posts like every day sometimes more than once a day but there is always around carnival time so much historical information about carnival and I'm sure some of the things I'm saying today while I've not directly referenced her it's things I've read from her page in the past that I've probably remembered and I'm now saying so I just wanted to shout her page out um it's a really really good page I think in terms of the Caribbean not just focusing on Jamaica which I'm definitely guilty of doing but looking at you know the islands the influences the global influences the political influences everything about um carnival the food the culture um and the Caribbean sorry so I would just say yeah if you want to know more and more details about different types of music maybe maybe the food definitely head over to her page Um, and I'll share stuff on our Instagram, the History Hotline, um, about, uh, you know, things that she's sharing and doing over this carnival weekend. And now we back, we back to Notting Hill and Claudia Jones. So as we left off in episode 41, um, after Kelso Cochrane's murder, Claudia Jones, who is a Trinidadian communist who came to London via Harlem because she was actually deported uh, from New York, um, because of the, and I quote, red baiting senator, Joseph McCarthy, who was on this, like, you know, anti-communist run. Um, and Jones is, you know, sent to, to Britain. 
um, because Trinidad also don't want her when she's faced with deportation. Um, she actually moved to New York as a child with her parents when she was seven, um, and she began to kind of get into communism and anti-racist struggles and anti-colonial struggles, and she campaigned to defend the Scottsboro bus, bus boys, which were a group of African-American boys who were framed for rape in the South. She joined the American Communist Party, and she played a leading role. Um, she was interned on Ellis Island twice, um, and then... Um, deported to Britain and it's funny because uh, Ellis Island was a kind of spiritual home for immigrants that were fleeing poverty and persecution and here she is being ordered to leave out of Ellis Island in 1955 and so she ends up in Britain she starts the West Indian Gazette which is like the first black publication in the UK um, and she also begins campaigns to support the Caribbean community through journalism and through activism. Um, and one of those initiatives that she brought about was actually the first Caribbean carnival, January 1959, at St Pancreas Town Hall, filmed by the BBC. Um, and her powerful slogan, which I love to this day, and I think it still resonates, which is this amazing thing about her, is a people's art is a genesis of their freedom. And it just puts so much power in our art as black people, Caribbean people and African people. Um, and the fact that, you know, Genesis is the beginning. So this art is the beginning of our freedom and being able to express ourselves, even if it's for like one weekend in August, in the rain, in the sunshine or whatever the weather we get. Um, it is just so important. Now, um, Claudia Jones's carnival in 1965 is very small. It's in a town hall. Sorry, 1959. Um, but 1965, if we fast forward, we have a smaller carnival that looks a lot more like what we have today, but still not on that scale. And it was started by a woman called Ronnie Laslett. Now, Ronnie Laslett is Russian and Native American. Um, so there's this big question, like, well, what does she know about carnival? She's a white lady. Um, doesn't really, if you think about it, have roots in this history necessarily, but she starts this kind of street party similar to a kind of v-day street party but obviously in the area of notting hill um because of her work as an activist helping people in the community through poverty um and it kind of starts with these adventure playgrounds and it was for children it was something for them to do um and unfortunately because her carnival wasn't huge and it wasn't i don't think documented in like newspapers and things like that and um, we have to rely on oral history and it's why oral history is so important but there's a documentary called Notting Hill Carnival who started it it's on YouTube there's 20 minutes of it on YouTube I think that's the whole thing um I'll try and link that but I don't know if the person that's posted it on YouTube actually has the rights and I don't want to get them in any copyright problems I wanted to put clips of it in here but I'm very scared of copyright don't want to fall foul of that um so I'll just tell you but her son Mike um he actually speaks in this documentary and he says that it wasn't recorded. It wasn't in the paper. So as a historian, looking back at this history, you're not going to find a paper trail of it. You have to go and talk to the people in the community who are still here because for the most part, you know, we're talking about the 60s. So if you were even a child in the 60s, you are as a good chance you're still alive now let alone in the 70s and 80s when Carnival continued and got bigger and bigger. Alongside Ronnie Lassler, there's also a man called Russell Henderson and another man called Selwyn Baptiste, who also kind of come into the story of Carnival and its origins for different reasons. Selwyn Baptiste um, actually taught pans, still pans, um, to children from deprived areas in the Notting Hill area. Um, and he kind of steered them, I would say, to better paths in life um, as children and then young adults, away from crime, into work, into a better life and better opportunities. 
Um, however, pans don't come into carnival until the mid-1960s, actually, when Ronnie Laslett invites Russell Henderson to play. Russell Henderson actually arrived in the UK in 1951. He was an established um, recorded pianist from Trinidad. Um, and then, you know, he was exposed to also the steel pan. Um, and he formed a group called the Russell Henderson Calypso Band. Um, and, you know, that comprised of different people at different points. But they were seen as really great entertainers. Now, steel pans had first been on British television in 1950, but obviously were not part of mainstream British culture in any way, shape or form. And they're still not today, which is obviously understandable. It's a Trinity instrument that's kind of been brought over for the sake of carnival um but in 1964 russell's band was invited by ronnie as i said to play steel drums at her and i will quote this annual children's event on tavistock road w11 the carnival in its initial stages was for children um which is really funny to me because i feel like it's gone so far from that today even though sunday is meant to be family day um, and be a lot calmer and kind of more for children's activities and for them to you know get part get involved in the culture and the history um it's not that much like that anymore however um it was in its roots an event for children in a way um and so they would walk with the pans so they had to fasten them around their neck and play mobile um and you know they started to walk in time to the beat um and then everybody involved in the event would follow actually in conga line kind of behind the steel pans um and then you know, anybody in the public that was kind of involved or kind of out and about, they might join as well. And it kind of led to, like, a impromptu street party um, in the way that, like, a VE Day celebration might be. Um, and I think that's when it kind of developed into this bigger event because they realised the possibilities of this carnival. You know, when you start bringing in the music, when you start bringing in the pans, you start bringing in the people, you start bringing in the right minds to organise, advertise, you've got food coming in, you've got the sound system in the 70s, you've got uh, Peter Minchel, who's in charge of costumes as well in the early 70s. This all comes together to build this fantastic carnival that we have today. So carnival develops and it develops. Uh, it gets funding from different people instead of being privately funded or funded by kind of, you know, work throughout the year. It begins to get funded by local councils at different points in its history. You know, it's there's fundraisers done. It's sponsored. Uh, it was sponsored by Lilt, which is, I think, an offshoot of Coca-Cola at one point. And so the more money it gets um, and it gets and grows into a bigger event and gets more better planning permissions you know it starts to bring in money for the council because traders can buy a spot to trade at to sell their wares to sell their food and carnival grows and grows and grows and it gets bigger into what we see today and now you know I feel like it would be wrong to not talk about the kind of controversies you've seen the headlines you know oh this amount of people you know were found with knives or these people have been stabbed or there were these amount of drugs seized before carnival or during carnival and this over policing of black people and black communities and black events it's just another kind of instance of this and I just feel like if an event, now this is not to justify crime in any way, shape or form, but if an event has such a high police presence, they're going to eventually find something, even if there was, you know what I mean, in proportion, the amount of crime that might have been there, compared to, say, like, a music festival, like Reading, like Leeds, Glastonbury, 
in terms of drugs or crime or of people taking overdoses and things of that nature, which you kind of hear about at festivals like that, but they're not painted the same way in the media. Um, and I don't think that's very fair um, for many reasons, most because I just feel like carnival is probably the only thing that as black people in this country, we kind of have to celebrate our culture. There isn't really anything like it at all. Don't get me wrong, there are carnivals in other cities um, and that's really important too um, and we haven't spoken about that. Maybe there'll be episodes about that in the future like the Leeds Carnival, Manchester, Handsworth as it once was but it is really important and I think I wanted to leave with a quote from Brian Elaine um, and this is in a text called Carnival in Leeds and London Making New Black British Subjectives um, edited by Geraldine Connor and Max Farrar. And he says, see the development of carnival in Britain in terms of a struggle by West Indians to make a public expression of a collective identity in the face of a structurally racist and hostile social reality in Britain. They have treated the carnival as one instance of the ongoing struggle of black people to forge social and political space in Britain. And I think this fact that carnival is non-conforming it shuts down streets, it challenges gender roles regarding costume, it's unapologetically loud, it's messy, you know, but within all of that, it is non-confrontational. It's a peaceful protest. It's us as black people saying we are here. It's not a riot, it's not violent, it's not a protest. It just is. And long may it continue, I hope. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.